Hi, and thank you for listening in to the New Song Podcast from this week's service. You are welcome and encouraged to join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays in person. And for more information on how to get involved with New Song, go to newsonglouisville.org and follow us on social media. And now for today's message. I want to dive into our message today. In all honesty, I'm... uh, Uh, It's a little ambitious today what I'm going to try to get in in the next three hours. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. In the next 35 minutes. uh, And if you believe that, you're an optimist. Pray for me. I'm going to do my best, okay? As I was praying and seeking the Lord about the message today, I told you last week we would, we would take a break from the Indestructible Joy series in Philippians and dive into Christmas. As I was praying about that, I began to realize the Christmas story is so accentuated with the word joy. The joy is all over the Christmas story. So this morning, we're kind of taking a little bit of a departure from Indestructible Joy, but not so much. In fact, today I want to kind of use it to throw in some things that I haven't been able to really work into our series since we're going verse by verse through Philippians. There's some things about joy, some new things I'm learning, some new things that are, that are deeply powerful that I want to share with you today. But let me just start by saying this, that um, joy's all over the Christmas story. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 45. It's when Mary and Elizabeth have that meeting. Both of them are pregnant, and Elizabeth, the baby in her womb, in in the latter part here, it says, for behold, let's see, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Isn't that something? Can you imagine what that must have felt like? Those of you who've carried a child, you know how it is when that baby starts to kick. But I don't know, did you ever have that baby leap for joy? What, a, what an incredible occurrence. Why did the baby leap for joy? Because the baby was in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus is joy. Joy isn't just a concept, folks. Joy is a person, a person who loves you, a person who died for you, a person who absolutely wants to secure an indestructible joy in your heart and your life this time of the year. For some folks, this can be a depressing time of the year. It doesn't have to be. Press into Jesus. He's with you. He'll make his presence known to you. Luke chapter 2 is is another powerful passage of joy in the Christmas story. It says, as the angels come to the shepherds out in the field, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of what? Great joy. joy. Everybody say great joy. Come on, say it again like you mean it. Great joy. Great joy. I'm telling you. God intends for his people to be people of great joy. And guess what? It's not limited. It's not limited. Look at what it says. A good news of great joy that will be for all the people. How many is that? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Man, I'm telling you, God's got great joy for you this morning. One of the primary themes is you study the Gospels and look at the Christmas story throughout the entire birthing of Jesus is this theme of joy. And it's not just a little joy for a few people, but it's great joy for all people. 
And I understand, and we've been talking about this over the past weeks as we've been diving into Philippians, that the invitation to follow Jesus is not an invitation to a life of ease that's void of difficulty, pain, grief, or sorrow, but it's an invitation to a life that is filled to the brim with what we've been calling indestructible joy, indestructible joy, a joy that is so deep, a joy that is so real that it can't be taken away, a joy that comes from a deep, deep knowing that behind all the problems and all the pain of this life, there's a redeemer at work in your life in ways you can't even comprehend, and his name is Jesus, and he is your joy. A believer's joy really begins with a a deep, settled trust in your heart in Christ and the promise that one day you and I are going to be caught up, if you will, into an endless torrent of joy that will never fade away and even the happiest moments of this life will pale in comparison when we receive the rewards of eternity, the life to come. Amen? I want to share some things with you. I get excited about brain science, and we're living in a day and a time where there's major advancements that are happening in the field of neurobiology, neuroscience, brain science, and so much, so much, almost everything I've seen absolutely coincides with Scripture, with what God's been telling us. It's just another one of those scientific advancements that you go, yes, it confirms what we believed and what we've thought and what we've known from Scripture. And I want to share some some new stuff with you today that I think will get you excited here this morning as we talk about the indestructible joy of Christmas. Amen? Check this out. Neurologists have shown that while most brain development stops somewhere in childhood, the brain's joy center, everybody say joy center. Joy. Do you know the brain, your brain had a joy center? This is what uh, neuroscientists are saying. The brain's joy center, which is located and observable in the right orbital prefrontal cortex is the only part of the brain that never loses its capacity to grow. How many of you can say amen to that? Is that awesome or what? You can keep growing in joy. Did you know that? Your brain can keep growing in joy. I mean, that's pretty cool stuff, right? Check this out. When the joy center has been sufficiently developed, it regulates emotions, pain control, and immunity centers. It guides us to act like ourselves. It releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. How many of you know that's good stuff, right? It's the only part of the brain that overrides the main drive centers, food, sexual impulses, terror, and rage. It overrides those things, right? Without sufficient joy strength, we spend the rest of our lives just trying to fill the deficit. Man, does that ever say... What we've been saying, amen, that God wants your joy to grow. God wants your joy to be your joy to be your strength. Jesus is your strength. Jesus is your joy. Can you say amen to that church? Your brain has a joy center. I want you to leave today thinking about that, meditating on that, asking God to increase that joy center in your brain. And you can increase it. You can cultivate it, you can exercise it, you can develop it, you can grow it. 
Or you can starve it, deprive it, and unintentionally decrease your brain's capacity for joy. Don't do that, please. So how do we do it? And we can spend a whole day on this topic. We'll get to it probably to some degree in the, in the future weeks as we dive back into Philippians. But let me just say this. Philippians 4.4, 4, one of the many places in the book of Philippians, every seven verses it's talking about joy or rejoicing, remember? Philippians 4.4 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. How often? Always. Talk about increasing that capacity. You learn to rejoice always, you'll increase your, your joy center's capacity. To rejoice always literally means to throw a party, okay, to get excited, to be happy, to be full of joy, to be full of life, to make yourself happy in God. And, and, and notice, by the way, it, it doesn't say if you can muster it, if you can manage it, be happy in God. No, it's a command. Be happy in God. Be happy in God. Rejoice in the Lord. Do it. Celebrate. Throw a party. How do you do that? Well, this morning, we'll, and keep reading in Philippians 4, you'll learn, and we'll get there, okay, in the future weeks. But this morning, I want to go after something. I'm on a, I'm on a mission this morning. I'm on a hunt this morning. I'm going to hunt down a, a, a devourer of joy, an enemy of joy that has affected every one of us in this room, I guarantee it, if you're honest. It's been trying to steal my joy even over the past several weeks as we've entered into the series on joy. I mean, while most of us would say, you know, we want more joy in our life, we may even acknowledge that we're created by God for joy, a joy-filled life. Sometimes if we're honest, there seems like there's a barrier. There seems like there's a challenge. There's difficulty. And to understand what's holding us back from really entering in to the joy that we've been talking about, we got to go all the way back to the beginning because the human story begins with an extraordinary God creating an extraordinary world filled to the brim with joy. So let's take a look at it. Genesis chapter 3. We find an incredibly important story. There's the concept in biblical study of first occurrences. And first occurrences in Scripture, first time things, certain things are mentioned they're foundational, and they're, they're really principles to learn from. So let's dive in this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Hang with me as we read the whole passage. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord 
God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? It's such a powerful story. Such a powerful story. And what, what continues after this, we won't read all of it this morning, is that the players in the story start blaming one another. They start pointing fingers at each other, just like we do today in the world we live in. Adam blames Eve, points the finger at Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And the serpent kind of actually owns it. I mean, he's the only one kind of taking responsibility to some degree. But what we see unfolding here is something that's so dangerous, so deadly to the human soul, so profoundly damaging to your heart and my heart and my mind and your mind, so destructive to the health of your relationships, your spiritual health, even to your body, your physical health. And I believe, I believe this one thing has the most potential to keep you from the joy that God created you for, and it's the word shame. One of the things I've battled over these past several weeks has been shame. Not even so much of things that I've, I've necessarily done, but things that, that are in my realm of responsibility. And the enemy's just tried to deluge me with shame. Tried to make me feel unworthy, tried to make me feel disqualified. For the second time in these 30 years of pastoring this church, I tenured my resignation to my overseer if they would accept it because of just the sense of shame that I felt. Both times, my overseers, who are godly, godly people, have been so kind and gracious and said, no, what you're walking through, what you're dealing with, what you're going through is going to make you a better pastor. We don't want you to run away and hide and let shame have the victory. In recent years, there's been an enormous amount of research into this topic of shame. There's some great books out there, by the way, I'll recommend. I'll be quoting some of them as we go along here this morning. But Dr. Kurt Thompson's a psychiatrist, Christian psychiatrist, has a great book called The Soul of Shame. We'll be talking a bit from that. Chuck DeGroote, another uh, therapist, has a great book called Wholehearted. Let me ask you a question this morning. Out of the research that's came on shame, at what age do you think that human beings first begin to experience shame? Anybody have a guess? What age do you think human beings begin to experience shame? Gina says four years old. Ask Jen Hansen. Okay. <laughs> what would Jen think? There we go. <laughs> Jen, do you know the answer? Yeah, according to the research that's been done, it's 15 months old. So before language, before cognitive understanding, before feeling bad because of some, how someone treated you, before the prefrontal cortex is developed, 
As a tiny little baby, you're already sensing things about yourself in the context of your environment and your caregivers, and you don't even have the ability to understand any of it yet, but shame is already there playing a role. Here's what, here's what Dr. Kurt Thompson says. We yearn to tell and hear stories of goodness and beauty, and this is the echo of God's intention. Okay, this is the way, as I said, he made the earth, right, brimming with joy. We long for our stories to be about joy, not just reflections of what we believe, but of who we are, who we long to be. But shame wants very much to infect every element of the mind in order to distort God's story and offer another narrative. And this is what we're bouncing up against. This is the challenge that every one of us must press through and must find healing, must find freedom from if we're going to experience the indestructible joy of Christmas and the indestructible joy that we should live with every single day. Thompson and many others have spoken and written extensively on this topic. And in one way or another, here's what it comes down to. Let me just make it clear to you. Shame's about identity. Guilt, if you will, is about behavior. There's a big difference between shame and guilt. One is negative, very negative, and very destructive. One is positive and corrective and helpful. Shame, the story shame tells us is this, is not I did something wrong, but shame tells us something's wrong with me. I'm not going to do this to you. Right? I'm, I'm not going to do this to you just for sake of sensitivity, but if I were to ask, I'm pretty sure if you were really honest, if I were to ask, have you ever felt that way? That not just that you did something wrong, but you felt like something was wrong with you deep down inside at some point in your life. I'm pretty sure we get 100% on that one. Shame. It's not, I've made a mistake and I can learn from it, but I am a mistake and I'll never learn. Guilt says I did something bad. Shame says, I'm bad. I'm bad. You see the difference between the two and how one is absolutely destructive? Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Naked there is not just a physical condition, right? It's really referring to the fact that they were able to be fully vulnerable. They were able to be seen and known and fully loved. Our greatest fear, every person's greatest fear, is that if we're fully exposed, if we're really vulnerable, we won't be loved. Because again, shame's gotten in there and made us feel not just that we've done some bad things, but that we are bad deep down inside and we need to be canceled. So Eve eats, Adam eats, and the disease of sin is introduced into the world. And now the whole of humanity is born into a world infected with this disease of shame, this epidemic of shame. The path away from joy began with shame in the garden, and the way back to joy is the hard, deep soul work of dealing with that shame. What's so fascinating is that we find in Genesis 3, 
is not only the introduction of the problem, but also, if you will, the diagnosis of the problem and the offering of the solution to the problem as well, the road back map, the, the road map back into the joy that God created for us. In his book, Chuck DeGroat, the book Wholehearted, he points to the fact that God asked in this passage three specific questions in Genesis 3, and without brutal, gut-wrenching, terrifying levels of honesty and vulnerability around these three questions, we probably won't experience the full range of joy that God has for us. So you ready for the three questions this morning? Because they might get a little uncomfortable, but I guarantee if you'll stick with it, it'll bring freedom. You guys ready? Question number one, where are you? Genesis 3, 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Or we could maybe interpret it and say it like this, and maybe it'll make a little more sense to us. How are you showing up in the world? How are you showing up in the world? How do others experience you? This is hugely important. And we need to get honest, and we need to look at this. Did God already know where Adam was? Of course he did. He's God. He's omnipotent. So is God asking the question for his benefit or for Adam's benefit? He's certainly asking for Adam's benefit. And the question is, Adam, how are you showing up in the world right now? Now that sin's entered the equation, how is this affecting you? What's going on with you? What's showing up in your reactions, Adam? And what's driving, by the way, those reactions, those behaviors? Where are you? Genesis 3.10, it says, And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is a really important passage of Scripture. It affects so many things in our, in our lives, if we're honest. Because we've all been doing the same thing in some way, shape, or form. Notice Adam's response, by the way, and we, we typically don't view it as being all that profound, but I'll, I'll be honest with you, if you really look at it, his level of self-awareness is pretty remarkable. He says right here, I was afraid. He, he admits an emotion. Most men have a hard time admitting an emotion, Men will admit when they're hungry or when they're tired, but how often do you hear a man admit an emotion, an underlying emotion that's driving his behavior, his reactions? And Adam does. It's pretty remarkable, to be quite honest with you. Why was he afraid? Because he realized he was naked. And what did he do? He hid himself. It's pretty astonishing. Adam verbalizes to God, not just what he did. He names what he felt, why he felt that way, and then what he did about it. Most of us go through our entire life making decisions, reacting to things and people and situations for reasons we don't even understand. Because most of us are living in a world that's so distracted, so frenzied, so fast-paced, so beyond our capacity to keep up with, and yet we're trying desperately to do so. We don't have a free moment to pay attention to what we're feeling. And the level of emotional intelligence and maturity in the world is so unbelievably crippled 
primarily because we never slow down enough to even hear God's question to us. Where are you? And most of us avoid that question because quite honestly, we're terrified of the answer. The question's an invitation, if you will, from God to slow down and really be curious about your own life. Where am I? How am I showing up in the world? Am I showing up anxious? Am I showing up fearful? Do I show up angry? Am I tense? Why is that? Am I combative? Am I aggressive? Am I defensive? Why is that? What's going on with me underneath the surface? I love King David. He's not a perfect man for sure. But he prays and does some really powerful things in Scripture. Psalm 139 is one of my favorite verses for a long time. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's an invitation for God to come and meet us right where we've been hiding to reveal in us those things that we've put away in our closets, so to speak, and we don't want anybody else to see. To some degree, this is the story, right? Well, if they knew that about me, they'd reject me. If they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. At least that's the lie we've believed. And because of that story, we do just what Adam and Eve did. We hide. We hide from God and we hide from one another. And notice in their story, one of the most effective ways to hide is by blaming, pointing fingers. Somebody else is at fault. Condemn somebody else. Shame somebody else. Genesis chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. He's pointing the finger at her. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is that this that you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent, he, he's the one that deceived me and I ate. It's interesting, right? Because God kind of puts the spotlight on Adam and Adam says, no, 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 it was her. She's to blame. And you, anybody but me, then the spotlight goes to Eve, and Eve says, well, who else is there? It's a serpent. Anybody but me. We're so hesitant to take our own responsibility in the day and the time we live in. It's not my fault. It's their fault. It's, this, is, that's, this is not about me. This is about them. I'm not to blame. They are. Let me just say this. Those of us who are carrying unaddressed shame will always find it easier to shame and condemn others. But only when you do that hard work of inviting God really into the deepest parts of your shame, only then are you free not to condemn or shame others because you're no longer hiding from your own shame. So the reason that God asks us the question, where are you, is because he's deeply committed to freeing us from our shame and bringing us out of our hiding, out of our isolation, out of our self-condemning, 
self-sabotaging narratives that play in our mind and cause us to be totally ineffective for the kingdom of God. Once again, Dr. Kurt Thompson says, those parts of us that feel most broken and that we keep most hidden are the parts that most desperately need to be known by God so as to be loved and healed. God came to find Eve and Adam to provide them the opportunity to be known as he knows anything else. For only in those instances when our shamed parts are known do they stand a chance to be redeemed. We can love God, love ourselves, or love others only to the degree that we are known by God and known by others. And boy, by the way, if that's not a great little advertisement right there for life groups and small groups coming up in the new year, I don't know what is. Stop hiding, church. Stop saying you're too busy. Start finding some places of real fellowship where you can know one another and be known by one another and be loved and accepted. As soon as you do that, as soon as you do that, the healing begins. Because when we're afraid of being known, we hide, we isolate, we shame, we condemn. As long as we're stuck in those patterns... It'll keep us out of the joy that God created us for. Question number two is simply this. Who told you that? Genesis 3.11, God says, who told you you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? What is the story that's playing out in your mind? Or we might put it like this. Whose voice have you been listening to instead of mine? God saying to you and I, whose voice? Have you been listening to instead of my voice? Every single one of us has our doubts and our shame. Those kind of shaming thoughts that just stream through your mind almost without, you know, they just, they just come. If you're not guarding your heart and your mind, they just come. You'll never amount to anything. You'll never be good enough. Don't you remember when you came from? Don't you remember what you did in the past? Don't you remember those failures, those problems, those mistakes, what you said, what you did? What makes you think you could ever be good enough? Who do you think you are? If that's you today, let me just say, God's asking you this question. Who told you that? Who told you that? And he's not saying it in a, in a tone to, to condemn or shame you. He's saying it in a way that he wants to expose the enemy for the liar and deceiver that he is. Who told you you'd never measure up? Who told you you had to have it all together? Who told you you should be further along? Who told you that God can't redeem your past? Who told you your sin is too great? Who told you your damaged goods? Who told you God could never use you? Who told you God could never love someone like you? Who told you you were naked? Romans 8.1, remember that powerful verse. There's therefore now no condemnation. How much? None for those who are in Christ Jesus. Question number three is simply this. Where are you taking your hunger? Genesis 3.11, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What are you, here's the question, what are you chasing in order to satisfy your hunger, to quiet your shame, 
Because that's what we do a lot of times. There's two really dangerous responses to the story that shame tries to get us caught up in. First danger is simply this, agreeing with the shame, and if you will, never stepping into the arena in the first place. How many of you know what I'm talking about when I say the arena? One of my favorite quotes is from one of our past presidents, Theodore Roosevelt, and it's called The Man in the Arena, and I love it. It's not the critic who counts, nor the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, but there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spins himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. The first problem is simply this. The first danger is agreeing with shame and never even stepping into the arena never daring greatly, never trusting God for what seems insane at the moment, never taking risks, never stepping out of the boat, always just flying under the radar, always playing it safe. Think about Peter. Peter's an interesting study, right? He's this interesting contrast in Scripture and Think about him after the betrayal of Jesus, though. After the occasion at the fire with the slave girl and the rooster crowing three times, what does he do? Anybody remember what he does? He goes back to fishing. It's really interesting, right? He, tra he, he treks right back to his old life. The man who had courageously stepped out of the boat to follow Jesus got back into it. Why? I can tell you in one word, shame. That's exactly why. And what does Jesus do? It's really a powerful passage. If you haven't read it in a while, I think it's John 21. Jesus cooks him breakfast. I love breakfast. How many of you love breakfast? <laughs> breakfast is like my favorite meal of the day. I get up in the morning sometimes thinking about breakfast. <laughs> Wouldn't it be awesome to have bacon today? Oh, man. One of the gifts of God. I'm so glad <laughs> God made all that okay. Anyway, Jesus cooks him breakfast and confronts his shame. Three times ask him if he loves him. What's he doing? Jesus is freeing him from that shame. Because every time after Jesus asks him, do, he, do you love me? He says to him, feed my sheep. You, you know what he's saying, right? <laughs> Peter. Those things you've been burying, those things you've been running from, those things you've been avoiding, those things you've been hiding, 
those things that you think have made you unqualified, those things that you think there's no path back from. I want to meet you right there and love you in the midst of it. (laughs) In the face of those things that you think make you the most unlovable, I want you to know I'm coming after you and I'm going to show you my love for you. Boy, it's powerful. Second danger is this. So the first one is let shame convince you to never get in the arena. The second one is just as dangerous. It's living your whole life trying to prove your shame wrong. Trying to quiet your shame, if you will, through performance or success or accolades or trophies or status or recognition or achievement, you name it. And the truth is, uh, we've developed all kinds of intricate and complex methods to quiet the shame we carry. Busyness, success, numbing through technology has been a really popular one in our day and time, right? Sex, substances, people-pleasing, gaming, gambling, compulsive spending, the list can just go on and on and on, even religion makes a pretty good fig leaf. We can really use it here in the South, can't we? We know how to speak Christianese. We know how to say the right words, all the while hiding our shame. <laughs> you got a secret addiction you've been trying to numb for 15 years, and you, you just, oh, the Lord is good. Oh, God bless you. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. All the while on the inside, you're dying, you're suffering, you're hiding. Because you're terrified of what will happen if you unlock that door and invite God into it. But in the midst of Adam and Eve's shame, God goes after them. I'm so glad, aren't you? The story doesn't end there. In the midst of Peter's shame, Jesus goes after him. And I'm just telling you here this morning, in the midst of your shame, Jesus is coming after you. He's coming to set you free. He's coming to bring you into the fullness of joy that he created you for. One more quote from Dr. Kurt Thompson. It says, the defining relational motif for humankind is not that we need to work as hard as we can or at least harder than we are. It's not to do our best or guarantee that our children will have a better life than we had. It's not about being right or the acquisition of power. Each of those and other versions like them play into the hand of shame's anxiety. No, rather, we were created for joy. You were created for joy. Not a weak and watery concept of joy that merely dilutes our sadness and pain. Rather, it's the hard deck on which all of life finds its legs, a byproduct of deeply connected relationships in which each member is constantly known. That's powerful. So as we close our time together today, said it before, I'll say it again, our greatest need is to be fully known and fully loved. It's exactly what Jaden was talking about just a moment ago, being fully known, being fully loved by God himself. The fear that we're fighting 
is that if we're fully known, we will not be fully loved. So let me just share two more scriptures with you, and then we're going to pray. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the what? Despising the shame. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Is Jesus that frees us from our shame. You know why? Because you are his joy. He gladly endured the cross and took on himself shame and humiliation like you cannot even conceive. And he's saying to you today, I'm not ashamed of you. How do I know that? Well, in the book of Hebrews, again, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. And look at this last sentence. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. If that's how he feels about you, bring him into your shame. Let him do the surgery and deep soul work that'll set you free and bring you into the fullness of joy that he has for you. Where are you? Who told you that? And where are you taking your hunger? Bring it to Jesus and let him bring you into his joy this Christmas because Psalm 1611 says, in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. Amen, church? Would you stand with me today? Let's pray together. Would you just all put your hands over your heart? Lord, right now, this morning, we just declare shame defeated in each of our lives because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, because of the price he paid for us, because of his incredible, enduring, everlasting, never-ending love for us. Shame is broken. Shame has no place. Shame can no longer hold us back. Shame can no longer be our master or have dominion over us or cause us to shrink back and hide from God, from his purposes, from his plans. Lord, this morning in Jesus' strong name, free us from shame. And Lord, we thank you for that right now. Can you say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We receive your love, your love, new levels of your love, new understandings of your love, new revelation of your love. And Lord, where there's perfect love, it casts out fear and it undoes shame. 
And Lord, this morning as we leave this place, may we leave with radiant faces that have been wiped free of all shame in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. amen. Can you give the Lord praise this morning? Amen. Hey, make sure you stop by, grab a copy of the book today and get ready for the new year. God bless you all. Merry Christmas. You're dismissed. Have a wonderful Christmas season.